Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Well, hello and welcome. My name is uh, Andrew Mackay. I'm the founder of Complexus um, Limited. I'm formerly an inspector in the Hong Kong police, but more importantly, latterly, I was a major general in the British Army. And with my last um, important job being commander of the British forces in Afghanistan. But without any further ado, let me introduce you now to our host of the leadership, inspiring leadership series, Jonathan Bowman. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's lovely to have you on, Major General Andrew Mackay, CBE, and um, a, a great past experience that you've had. And it's interesting that there's also the, the Royal Hong Kong Police connection. Uh, Manley Hopkinson, who, uh, as well as being in the Navy, I think he was in the Royal Hong Kong Police. And also there was um, the CEO of uh, ARC Data uh, Limited, uh, also did a series and he was in the Royal Hong Kong Police. So it, it's a rather nice connection. But the, the connection goes further into Mike Still, who I have a lot of respect for uh, uh, as a mutual friend of ours. Uh, he said, look, if you want a really inspiring man to have on the series, uh, have Andrew. And so it's lovely to have you here. And um, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. And then I'd be particularly interested in uh, that uh, BBC radio documentary that uh, they did about you and, and, the, and the team you led in Afghanistan called Afghanistan, The Lessons of War. But, but tell us a bit about now, Andrew. Sure. Um, well, very much, I guess, into my third career, I always, I remember someone saying it was wise to have three careers because um, it gave you a bit more depth, particularly if you messed up the first two. Um, so I went to my third uh, career. I started off as a, sort of rather gauche 19 year old going to Hong Kong, um, which was often referred to as the Far East Foreign Legion. And it kind of felt a bit like that when I, when I got out there. But more latterly, um, I set up this company with a, a colleague, David Womble, uh, after I left the army. I was fairly determined not to work for anyone else as part of my third career. And so the only way you can really do that is by building your own company. And so we've been going now for eight, nine years, and uh, we're much, very much focused on Africa. And what we do essentially is a lot of advisory and help with fairly complex projects in Africa, predominantly. And uh, we have a range of clients from mining companies to private equity companies. And um, we charge around Africa fixing quite significant problems, um, not always entirely successfully, but mostly successfully. And if they're not entirely successful, um, it's because it's just gonna take longer than we would have anticipated. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I'm, I'm listening to an audio book, I'm reaching for it now. Um, I'm dying to know which one it was, which was, I'll be looking it up, about um, the Chinese, um, China's second continent and um, by Howard French. 
about just how the Chinese have sort of taken over much of the mining. When I was in Botswana, you know, mines owned by China. And also when I went to see my best man and friend in Jamaica, you know, roads built by the Chinese, uh, ports owned by them there and in Sri Lanka when I was in Sri Lanka. So, so that's a whole interesting area in itself, just the, the domination. Do you, have you come across that in your, in your travel? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, China are fairly omnipresent wherever you go in Africa. And the deal was a fairly simple one, and that was infrastructure for resources. Mm. And we don't ask too many questions and get involved in politics. Um, mm. But they do tend to leave a large part of the Chinese workforce behind in Africa. Mm. And I think what brings it really to mind to me was um, when I first left and was charging around Africa, trying to stitch complex deals together. There's quite a famous railway line that switches from Dar es Salaam into the, the Zambian copper belt. It's called the Tazara line. And what people don't realize, it was built in the 70s. It was built over 50 years ago. And um, it was built predominantly with uh, Chinese uh, labor, about 40,000 odd. And then when you go into the, the railway station in Dar es Salaam, there's a very large mural. And it's interesting because it's got Kenneth Kaunda, the first president of Zambia. It's got Julius Nyeri, the president of Tanzania. But in the middle, dominating both of them, is Mao Zedong. Wow. And it's a kind of testimony that China planted a flag for very strategic uh, reasons a long time ago. And um, wherever you go now, you'll see a Chinese presence in, in Africa. And the West and the US are in catch-up mode. Mm, yeah, very much so. And also my colleague who is in these various countries said, and just remember that these local Chinese workers, they're also almost like part of the PLA. They're, they're armed and equipped. They're trained with weapons. And it's almost like they've got their own empire with their own people around the world, but in a, in a very sort of quiet mode, waiting for the moment that they need to, to act. Yeah, and they, they are extraordinarily entrepreneurial. Mm. And so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the Chinese workforce that will build this infrastructure... Um, don't go back to China. Um, and so who do they turn to? Well, they turn to China for supply chain or they set up small businesses, um, a range of businesses, and the supply inevitably comes from China. Yeah. And, um, and you know, they, they completely you know, embrace the local community. Well, embrace in the sense that they live within the local community and, and they work within that community. Yeah. So um, many are critical of China's presence in uh, Africa. It's because they've been there for so long and we forget just how long China has been in Africa and yeah. taking Africa, it's Africa strategy, very seriously indeed. Yeah, uh, it's a fascinating area all of it of its own. We could, have a, we could have a conversation just on that. But there's so many things we can talk about. Andrew, I'd, I'd also be very interested in um, if you touch on... Uh, Afghanistan, your sort of view briefly. I know you've been interviewed a lot on on press and radio about your views about you know the uh, the sudden 
collapse of what happened in Afghanistan after all the effort that's gone into. And then briefly, if you wouldn't mind mentioning the, the huge battle that you were involved in and the operation that you planned. Sure. Uh, I think like many, Jonathan, I watched events unfolding in Afghanistan with a mixture of shame and um, sadness um, that it came to what it came to. I mean, H.R. McMaster's, who I know, talks about this was self-defeat, and it's hard not to uh, disagree with him. You know, it was a failure. And the, the tragedy, as so much else, is it really didn't have to be the way it ended. Mm. And it really doesn't have to be um, something where we have a litany of errors and strategic um, error, mistakes along the way. It's interesting. I, I often, when I when I was in Afghanistan, I was often asked about you know victory and winning, and my response was always the same. It was, we, you know, talk of victory and winning is no way to go about conducting a counterinsurgency. I thought we could succeed, and success meant bringing in those who are opposed to you into some form of negotiation as soon as you could. I don't think there's been a successful counterinsurgency conclusion without talking to your enemy. Mm. You have to talk to them and you have to have talks about talks about talks about talks. And then you have talks about the negotiation, then you have negotiation. So it's not something that's done in a year or two. It's many, many years. And so I look at Afghanistan now and think of all the missed uh, opportunities. Um, I also think it's when you go to these very complex environments, um, they're very unforgiving. And so if you make your mistakes early, they live with you. And so if you take, say, Iraq, you know, departification, disbanding the Iraqi army in the manner that we did, those were very difficult to, to walk back from, and they had enormous second and third order consequences. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, you know, we had the idea of the bond agreement that we could, at the very beginning, that we could somehow have a centralized form of government working from Kabul when Afghanistan had always, had always been decentralized um, and anarchic, of course. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, we gave the, I think that we gave the police training to the Germans, the Italians, you can do justice. Brits, we picked up drugs, um, eradication. So it was all very poorly conceived from the beginning. And then we migrate across to negotiations with the Taliban. And we keep on telling them, okay, we're going to surge, but then we're leaving. And so on the ground, how did that translate across to Afghans? who thought, you know, well, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going, you know, you're going to leave. So how can I trust you? How can I engage with you in a meaningful manner? And then we have the sort of final few months and the debacle that appeared on our screens. Yeah, it, it was such such a tragedy. And um, I think it's it's done huge damage to the reputation of both the American and the British Army when that had been so hard fought for by uh, leaders and soldiers like you and others who were there. It was interesting, one of the other um, leaders who's been on this series, and, and you may know him, General Jonathan Shaw, who was Director of Special Forces. Uh, he spoke the other day, he spoke on the series, but he spoke the other day about 
culture and the fact that we really just didn't get the culture in Iraq. We certainly didn't get the culture in Afghanistan, that it was tribal, it wasn't individual. And to try and democratize it and put our way of thinking onto them was never going to work. Um, and, and, and for for so many times we've been arrogant about thinking our way is the way we can impose around the world, a bit like the Russians tried to do with communism on Afghanistan, and they didn't want that either. Um, look, that's a, a fascinating, thank you for, for sharing that. And very briefly, would you talk about the operation that, that was the, um, the basis of this BBC radio documentary and your uh, BBC long form web article, which was The Art of Influence, which I so enjoyed reading. And would recommend people listen. Yeah, I think I, if I just take a little step back and deal with that issue of culture. I, um, when I first went out to on my first recce to Afghanistan, I was reading a lot of behavioural economics because I was, I mean, you know, the sort of papers that Kahneman and Sversky had written and others. Um, for, because I was reading them, I it was sort of, lots of ideas were germinating. And it was only when I actually went on my first recce that I realised that we were kind of saying to a, a population that were probably some of the poorest in the world, that, you know, in the seventh century had seen Islam merge seamlessly with Pashtun Wali. And we thought that they were behaving irrationally. You know, this understand piece, you know, what's wrong with democracy? It's a good thing. Um, why can't a woman be educated in school? Um, what, why support the Taliban? They're not going to help you develop your fields. Um, and it was only this realisation, because I was reading all this behavioural economics, that I realised that they were behaving entirely rationally. It was us that was entirely irrational in our approach. And so that then set off the train of thinking that made us think much more closely about how are we going to influence this most complex of ecosystems uh, within Helmand. And from there, we worked our way through in our, in our thinking to the idea that somehow we needed to reduce the kind of kinetic action and try and increase the non-kinetic approach. And in doing so, we, we wrapped that around this sort of idea of influence, persuade and convince, perhaps. Um, now, I'd be the first to admit, you know, you're trying to do this within a six, seven month period. And again, that's one of the, the problems that we face in Afghanistan is that we had multiple six, seven months tours. Uh, we didn't have a sort of, what, um, an eight, 10 year campaign. Yeah, it, it, it was so many lessons, uh, not only just for, for the military, but I, I love the fact that the, the behavioral economics side that you were thinking about and how do we influence and persuade people, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Uh, even if you just take Stephen Covey's advice, uh, we, we weren't doing that. We, we were going in with a large stick and trying to convince them that our way was the right way and they were the nutty ones. Um, let's go back to early childhood. Um, what, what is it in your upbringing and with your family and key people who, who've influenced you, uh, Andrew, that has shaped you into the leader you are today, both as a, a very successful major general in the British Army 
but then also setting up a, a business which is doing incredibly well, um, sorting out very complex issues in Africa for, for PE and mining companies. Yeah. Um, well, both my parents, um, particularly my father, were, were kind of born into fairly grinding poverty in um, the very north of um, Scotland, a place called Thurso. Mm -hmm. And um, my father's parents, um, you know, after the Second World War, came to Edinburgh looking for work. And... Um, very, very hard existence. I mean, I, I remember him taking me to the house that he had been brought up in, and um, it literally was a sort of stone house with a grass-type roof with an outdoor loo and a, a hearth to keep warm. It was, and his father was a, was a labourer on a farm. So um, they did a pretty good job in his, his values, and, um, and uh, he was a wonderful wonderful human being. Mm -hmm. So I, I took from him this idea of, you know, listening more than speaking. He was sort of fairly taciturn. And, um, and then, of course, he joined the army age 15 um, because his parents essentially said to him, we can't, we, can't, um, we can't house you anymore. You know, we can't, you know, we're... we're but barely eating. So he was homeless for a while in, in Edinburgh and um, and then he got picked up age 15 and joined the army at age 15. Went through the ranks and uh, became a major eventually and um, um, was a man of sort of endless humour, joy, fun and, you know, supported in a very traditional manner by my mother who was utterly devoted to him and to us. So, you know, we had a very happy childhood. Mm. Mm. How many were there in your, in your family? It's myself and, uh, and my sister. Yeah, yeah. And, and the values, we'll, we'll touch on those later, but it's interesting how the, the influence of your father and his upbringing um, really comes through when the times are tough. And we'll, we'll touch on that. Who else would you touch on in your childhood before you joined the army yourself? That, um, that influenced you? And perhaps just take us through some of your army career and some of the, the roles that you had, if you just briefly give us a bit of a yeah. chronology. Well, I, 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 went to, I, went to, I hated school with a passion, is the bottom line. And so I left as soon as I could. I was age 17 uh, when I left. Um, I got a clutch of very average um, hires and um, much to my parents' dismay, because they'd, you know, scrimped and saved to send me to, um, to boarding school. But I learned early on that if you, don't, if you don't make the judgment for yourself, others will make it for you. And so I was determined to go, and so I left. And, mm -hmm. um, and then it was, what, you know, what do you do? You know, you made a decision to, to leave. And to cut a long story short, after a bit of time, I... I go to Hong Kong and, um, you know, you have this sort of seminal moment where your father's probably champing at the bit to saying, what on earth are we going to do with him? Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. And then um, he passed me, a, I remember this vividly, a copy of the Sunday Telegraph magazine and there was an advert for the Royal Hong Kong Police. And I thought, well, I'll just keep him happy and I'll 
send off and see what they say. Um, remarkably, in sort of, you know, what for them would have been first-class marketing, back comes this amazing box full of stuff from Hong Kong. And I thought, right, I'm going to go. And so literally three months later, I was there. I mean, it, oh. it, it moved so quickly and I ended up in, in Hong Kong. So, I, you know, I, I, I went there seeking adventure and um, I had tried to get into the military um, before I went to Hong Kong and they quite rightly, you know, I went to Westbury and they quite rightly said, look, you're, you're far too immature and um, you need to do a bit of growing up before you can go to Sandhurst. So, um, yeah, I went off to Hong Kong. Mm. Wow, amazing. And in your army career, what, what kind of roles did you have? I presume you commanded your battalion, What was which was that? Yeah, I, I mean, a fairly traditional route in many ways. And that, um, a bit, you know, I joined the Kings and Scottish Borderers. Um, uh, they were in Osdebrook when, when I arrived. Um, and like everyone else, you're kind of craving that first operational tour, but you know, for in those days um, during the Cold War, it could only, it, it, the only tour that was available to anyone was Northern Ireland, and mm. um, we were in Germany. Um, so uh, you know, I, I I enjoyed it. You know, it was it was, it was enjoyable as a, a as a subaltern, even though I was probably the oldest subaltern in NATO at that point, having been in. The Hong Kong police and uh, arrived uh, as a junior sergeant, but um, we then moved off to Colchester. I got command of what was called the Close Observation Platoon. Um, we were off to Northern Ireland, which was you know wonderful. I you know, I, funny enough, I, I was getting off the sleeper train from London yesterday morning, and I bumped into one of my Close Observation Platoon private soldiers um, who, you know, and of course that's all we talked about, you know, for half an hour at the, at the station about something which was very formative in our respective lives. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, this is a progression of jobs and then obviously up through company commander. And um, that was interesting because it was, we were based in Wheaton and it was six weeks on in South Omar, six weeks off. And then um, progressively ending up in command of the Kings and Scottish Borderers. Mm. And then you you had a brigade command as well. Which which brigade was that you commanded? Yeah, so I I commanded fifty two brigade infantry brigade, and um, it was one of those sort of happy circumstances. I had been told I was going to go and command um, a regional brigade. It got changed. I went to fifty two brigade, and we set about immediately. I'd been to Iraq for a year at that point. And so um, I immediately set about seeing what we could do with the brigade. Became a type A brigade, but with a very limited sort of um, a focus on security sector reform. And, um, and at that point, by happenstance, the British Army ran a brigades um, to go to Afghanistan. And so I was, I'd taken the brigade headquarters to Lebanon. Um, we were there for saying it's unstable. Can you hear me? I, I can hear you. Yeah, it, it's, it's broken up a little bit, but we still hear the, the message. So, so keep going. So we, I took the brigade headquarters, small element to Lebanon during the, um, the, the 2006 conflict to try and help the Lebanese army on security sector reform. Um, and then I got a call to say that you're 
that's been decided you're taking the brigade to Afghanistan and next year. So, you know, about 12 months later. So we kind of went from a brigade headquarters of, you know, 15, 20 people um, to 120, 150 people. We're based in Edinburgh Castle, had to move them out of Edinburgh Castle. I always actually remember Richard Barons, who was a huge supporter of um, the effort to get this small brigade up to speed um, and take a task force to Helmand, um, saying to some conference that, um, yeah, once we gave um, Andrew Mackay the, the direction that he was to take his brigade to, to Helmand, we then had to give him a second order, and that was to shoot all the Labradors that were in his headquarters because they wouldn't be going. <laughs> because it had that sort of it had that sort of rather sedate image of being based in Edinburgh Castle. Um, <laughs> fortunately, we didn't have to shoot any Labradors. That that would be my daughter would be very, very pleased about that. She worries more about animals than about people. Um, that's lovely. And so, in your career, both in the military and uh, and also now in the eight to eleven years that you've been out and, and running your own business uh, very successfully in Africa and elsewhere. What's been your proudest moments and what have been your darkest moments and what did you learn from each of those two imposters? Yeah. Um, I think you could be, I think you could be very careful about proudest moments because um, more often than not, it's down to many others, not down to you. Um, I, I think actually, uh, Maybe one of the more important ones is was um, was when I was in the Hong Kong police and mm. um, I ran a, um, a drug squad for the best part of a year, um, and that meant you know everyone was in plain clothes and um, we got some very big cases you know pounds of heroin and um, I remember suddenly being told that I had been given two um, two awards because of these cases and I had to go to I had no idea that I was getting these awards they're on my wall somewhere at the moment and I suddenly kind of thought that maybe I wasn't quite as useless as I thought I, I was because you know these two big cases that we'd um um, we're getting to we're getting I was getting awarded for them mm. so you know it was in the paper and uh, it was unusual to get to and it kind of it made me uh, pride is not a word I'd like to use but it, it did make me think hang on I have got some ability um, I can operate in a fairly difficult environment I can run a drug squad reasonably well um, so it was a it was a it was a moment that for me was fairly special. It's the first time I'd been awarded anything. I'd never mm. at school and won any awards at all. So you know, it's the first time in a real in the real world that I felt that someone was recognizing whatever talents I had. Yeah, and it does raise that point. Um, I, I myself struggled at school and. Uh, only years later, they realised I was dyslexic and I wasn't thick, as my teacher told me. That I was going to be a dustman. I think it was her, her comment because I couldn't spell and do math. That, that it's only later in life when something starts to go well for someone and you appreciate them or you catch them doing something right. It's amazing how it lifts that person, changes their life. I mean, that clearly changed yours. And then, you know, going on to your success. And I, 
I imagine um, that once you arrived in the army with that depth and width of experience, that not only were you going to be a natural for the close observation platoon and things like that, but you'd bring a different perspective that others uh, just just with one experience wouldn't wouldn't bring. I think that's just fantastic. And what about um, some of the tough moments in your life? I mean, uh, would you yeah, just, just share? It's um, definitely um, Helmand would be the, one of the low points um, because of you know the, the casualties and um, and soldiers being killed. And I I, I remember going to um, a ramp ceremony where we're returning um, the whatever Royal Marine and. Um, it's a very dramatic scene when it's done, and it's done very extremely well and very somber. All of Camp Bastion turns out to, to witnesses. Actually, um, the, the war artist that we got to Helmand, a chap called Robert Wilson, whose book Helmand I'd recommend to anyone as a as a as a war artist's body of work. It's just superb. He captured an, an amazing image of this ramp ceremony. But anyway, I was going back in the Chinook, back to Lashkar. And we had mountain casualties. Um, we had the Musakala incident, you know, bubbling away. And I'd stuck a warrior group up there to try and start drawing the Taliban um, away from Musakala. A whole bunch of things were going on. And we'd been attacked in the Helmand River Valley over the last couple of days and had quite a number of casualties, but, but no deaths. And I remember getting the Chinook and thinking, you know, am I getting this right? You know, am I, you know, the headquarters is working as hard as it can. Um, I've set us on this course of influence. Um, you know, is it all failing? You know, and you, you have that sort of really sort of, you, you, you begin to doubt whether or not you've actually got it right. And, um, but the more I thought about it, and by the time I landed, I went into the operations room. I said, okay, we've got to double down on, on what we're doing. You know, we're, we're going to have to take our brigade reconnaissance force out of here, and we're going to stick them back up, and we're going to put them up into uh, Musukala, and we've got to do it within the next 24 hours. And so, you know, by this stage, the headquarters is full of amazing men and women, and you then... They don't just say, okay, so we'll get on with it. They then, you sit down, you go through the planning process. But that's exactly what we did. And um, it was one of those sort of very dark moments where you're questioning your judgment, questioning your abilities. You're um, questioning whether or not you're leading this task force appropriately. But you kind of, fig you can figure this stuff out. You know, it's, um, and it's not that you figure it out on your own. You figure out you figure it out with people who you trust and who work with you, and um, and that's exactly what we did. And um, we then went on to successfully recapture Musakala. Mm. No, and and I do commend to people to to read about that, um, the art of influence, and also the uh, the radio documentary Afghan Afghanistan: The Lessons of War. Um, coming on to um, all that experience you've accumulated. 
both uh, in the military, uh, in war. People would call it operations, but you were at war. Um, and uh, and also now running your own business as a CEO with, with some very complex issues that you're dealing with. Um, knowing what you know now, going back and meeting that uh, scrappy little 17-year-old who, who didn't want to stay at school and hadn't got many hires and things, what bit of advice would you give yourself if you went back yeah. in time? This matters, and don't worry about that. What would you say? Yeah, so that is an interesting question. Um, I would say that what you don't know is of far more importance than what you do know. And um, I kind of latched on during the Afghan tour because I was studying behavioral economics, a chap called R.V. Jones, who um, had you know, the quotes attributed to him, but it's basically, do not believe what you want to believe until you know what it is you need to know. And I think that is fantastic advice, particularly in an age of fake news, misinformation, um, opinions not troubled by, by sort of fact or science or whatever. And so if I had known that, um, I had that bit of advice uh, when I was younger, yeah, um, I would have perhaps make different decisions along along the way because you kind of you were desperate to gain experience because that's of course of past not knowing something. Um, but I it, if that advice I think makes tells you to be much more curious and to think much more obliquely and to think much more widely. And then in fact in fact you to do that how do you do that? Well, you've got to read a lot and you've got to speak to a lot of people and you've also got to learn your lessons the hard way. You know, failures are a reality of life, but they are much, much better if you can take away where you failed, where you got it wrong um, as part of that process. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I'm just making some really good notes there i think that's outstanding and i if you were to recommend uh, i know it's an audio book uh, but if you, you know of an audio book that you think's good on behavioral economics that's relevant for us today is the one that that you'd say this is quite a seminal one really quite powerful of all the things you've read yeah i um i was very influenced by daniel kahneman and amos Tversky. But I had to read through a lot of the academic papers um, because at that point, Daniel Kahneman had not written Thinking Fast and Slow, which I think is a sort of seminal moment in, in um, it's, well, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? He, you know, he's a psychologist, but he gets the Nobel Prize for economics. Um, mm. And then more recently, um, Mervyn King and John Kay. Uh, John Kay is a wonderful writer. Um, wrote a lovely little book called Obliquity, which I read with interest a while ago, but Radical Uncertainty is by far the most influential book I've read in the last year and a half, two years, oh. published at the beginning of last year. Yeah. And we have certainly taken many of the, the ideas and thinking into our business in yeah. terms of how we provide advice and how we think through a problem. 
Fantastic. No, I'm looking forward then to, to reading both those. And uh, uh, thank you for that. So let's now go around. So take that, uh, that radical uncertainty and go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. Uh, it's just our own bit of research, my wife and I, of what, what makes high-performing leaders and teams. And um, in our own books, Inspire Leadership and Inspire Women Leaders, we found that these seem to be the things that helped those leaders uh, in times of trouble and in, in good times. So the first one is MQ, moral quotient. You know, your, your foundational values that your father gave you, your principles you live by, um, your integrity, your ethics. And obviously, as army officers, you and I, this was such a, a core part of us. And when we strayed from it and when we stayed on the line, um, what would be a, your top three values that, that you've found have served you then and served you now that, that you live by, by way of your, your That's a hard one. values? One of the ones I would say, and it's something that my father used to say to me, repeatedly, um, he used to always say, Andrew, always tell the truth. It's much easier to remember. Mm. Um, and that's not, it's not then that you've always told the truth. You know, we've always been a bit economical with the truth when it suits us, you know, particularly mm. when you're, um, you've been caught out doing something or whatever. But um, I, I, I've always taken that... Um, I've always taken that very seriously. Um, it, you, know, you know, Jonathan, it's very easy to, to quote the kind of leadership. There's a very good book by Sanford professor, Jeffrey Pfeffer, and it's called Leadership Bullshit. Yeah? <laughs> and, and what he's pointing out is, look, you know, the leadership industry in America alone is about $14, $15 billion. Yeah? Um, you can, there's endless books about leadership. There's endless podcasts and goodness knows what else. I mean, yours is one, yeah? Um, and so the question he poses, if, if it's so ubiquitous and it's so widely considered and discussed and taught and trained, then why is it so awful? Mm. You know, why are so many workplaces full of disaffected people? Um, why is loneliness, boredom, and disengagement in companies as widespread as it is. Why is there so much mental health mm. problems within organizations and institutions? And what he's basically saying is that people talk about leadership. I mean, it's great, you know. Courage is the most important virtue. It's the one that guarantees all the others, yeah? There, I've said that before to people, but of course, it's easy to say, you know, you can pluck this stuff out, you know, is what's the most important leadership traits? Is, is it a seven? Is it a 10? Is it a 12? Well, tap it into Google and you get an answer. You know, I, I was giving a talk about some of this a while ago and I just casually thought, I wonder what LinkedIn is. So you know, go onto LinkedIn and there are 450,000 people who are leadership gurus. There were... 300 or 1,000 who are thought leaders, yeah? Um, the word strategy has got to be one of the most abused words of all. And so I, I say all that, Jonathan, because I think it's really important that we look at leadership realistically. I was, um, when I was a colonel, I was um, 
uh, what's called Col MSB, which was responsible for uh, all of this sort of career management of lieutenant colonels, majors, and captains uh, in the British Army uh, at staff. And um, I remember the, the then military secretary coming by my office with a paper, and he said, you should read this, it's really interesting. And it was basically written by two academics on behalf of Donald Rumsfeld, and basically saying that they'd done this study of American military leadership, and they reckoned about 20% of the American leadership was toxic, genuinely toxic, yeah? And then you look around your own army, and it kind of exists as well. So it's a long way of answering your question, or perhaps not answering your question. No, but I think, I think you've touched on, on a on a very pertinent point and you know even in producing these podcasts and talking about leadership and and having uh what we found as a, a useful freedom within a framework of some principles it's just it's just true that not one size fits all and humans are very complex and uh, if there was a silver bullet someone would have found it by now and for some people, I mean, I think it's like Colin Powell, who I, I quite like, General Colin Powell and, and, and what he did. And his book was called It Worked For Me, but it doesn't mean it has to work for you. So, yeah. so I think it's a very well-made point. And so if we even just to allow us to have that framework conversation, but, but yet with still a healthy dose of skepticism about great words of wisdom about leadership and this worked for you, um, what about PQ? What about what gives your life meaning and purpose? Why, why do you do what you do now? What did, why have you done what you've done? Is there a, a thread that runs through your life about the work you're doing now and what gives it meaning and purpose? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly like um, being involved in more complex issues. I, I've never wanted, I've always favoured adventure over comfort. Um, and that's not a critique of those who prefer comfort over adventure. It's just what I enjoy. Um, and I think, I think it's, as part of that, um, I think it's just too much of a cliche to say, I want to make a difference because how do you even go begin measuring whether or not you have or have not made mm. a difference? But I certainly want to be, um, you know, to the fore of thinking, you know, how is this small little company going to expand? How is it going to develop? How is it going to be, um, you know, how is it going to do a good job for its, its clients? Mm. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about purpose uh, in the sense of, you know, we all know what we do. We all know how we do it but uh, we struggle to explain why we do it. You know? mm, mm. And so that, that why is, why do you do what you do? I don't think there's any easy answers, but fundamentally, fundamentally, <laughs> it's got to be, are you enjoying it? Yeah. You know, and are, are the people that you're meeting and engaging with, people you enjoy being with? Because if, it's, if they're not, and you're not enjoying what you do, it's not so simple as to say, okay, we're going to get another job, yeah? But it's not that simple, yeah? Because you're deep into commitments and family and any, mm. any, any, any number of things. 
So that idea of purpose and being married with strategy and leadership is kind of what really interests me. Yeah, and, and I think back to uh, as a young schoolboy seeing a poster in another boy's room with a uh, soldier falling back shot in Vietnam and, and just the question at the very top, why? And um, mm. it's it stuck in my mind ever since why we do what we do, why we, why we believe in serve to lead. And, you know, my father died for serving uh, his country, our country, um, uh, saving the lives of two other men uh, while he was a fast jet pilot. Mm. And, and, you know, why? Uh, why did he do those kind of things and, and your father's service and yours? Um, let's go on to the, the third topic, which I find quite interesting, which is health quotient. Uh, physical and mental health and well-being. Um, if it's not too difficult for you to talk about, you've recently had a health scare at uh, the age of 64, uh, which could have ended your life. Uh, and as we've discussed, you and I, in my brother's case at 63, his life did end suddenly within 10 weeks. So it makes us realise that the end is very close to us, or it could be a long way, but, but it certainly makes you think. And you had a period of time you discussed when you were waiting for the results. How does that put your life in context and what went through your mind at that time? Yeah, no, it's, um, I certainly don't mind talking about it because it's part of... No, I, um, it turned out I had a thing called COVID foot. I had COVID, but I was completely asymptomatic. But one of my f- foot had blown up and then it was basically diagnosed that this is COVID foot. It's a symptom of COVID, but actually it only really impacts... Uh, younger people so I felt quite good about that but I just then pointed to something in my head and said is is this part of the COVID reaction and uh, luckily the doctor was very sharp-eyed and she said no I think that's uh, skin cancer and so um, I was very fortunate and I got seen very quickly and it was removed very quickly but then you as we've discussed you have this terrible period where you know, the, the, the consultant will tell you, look, it's, we ought to get it all. That's great. This is, you're going to get cancer. This is the cancer to get. Or I don't get it all. And you'll have to come back for, for the treatment, radiotherapy or something. Or worst case, um, it's got into the rest of you. Um, and we'll have to deal with that when we get the results. Mm. So I then had to spend, what, three weeks thinking well, what's going to be the consequence of, you know, what, what is he going to say to me? Mm. And what, what I would say is I was pretty at peace with myself over it because, um, you, know, I have, you know, I have a wonderful family and uh, I have a wonderful wife and um, we've um, got a lot that's, you know, brought great joy and happiness. And so my, my sense was I'll just wait and I didn't get too anxious about it. I, um, it, it, it was what it was. And um, there were always many, many, many people who are far worse off than, than I was. And I often, in moments like this, where you're feeling a little bit of self-pity or whatever, I think about some of the... I always think about the soldiers who never returned mm. from Afghanistan. And I think about some of the soldiers with... Horrific injuries, you know, triple amputee, Mark Ormrod, mm-hmm. and others. And so um, it kind of puts it into perspective. Yeah. And actually what it was fundamentally, Jonathan, 
it was a bit of a wake-up call, you know? Mm. Maybe don't work so hard. Yeah. Start enjoying life a bit more. Go and see Bruce Springsteen in concert. Yeah. <laughs> and have you? Or are you? I have. No, I didn't. I have once. But, and then he came here to Glasgow. I mean, he's, um, if, if I was there to do Desert Island Discs, he's going to have to feature. But the... Um, and I'll never do design in this, but um, <laughs> in, my, in my mind, I have the, the records lined up. But um, no, I work got in the way. You know, mm. So I uh, had to go off to Japan, I think it was, and um, never got to see him second yeah. time round. Yeah, well, or fooled me. I, I think you're right about everything gets put in perspective. And I, I know we, we discussed uh, what you've been through, and then uh, with my brother dying and my other brother being stabbed, each, I, I take every day as a bonus. Uh, whatever whatever comes our way um and as you say when you when you've seen some people getting killed or being uh we had chris moon on and and chris i think also had a connection to royal hong kong police at some stage in his career as well um that uh you know he lost his arm and his leg with, with the halo trust um on, on a mine and um but yet he's done the Marathon des Sables, I think, is it five marathons across the Sahara Desert? Just phenomenal stuff in yeah. those early days. Yeah. Um, with all the travel that you do, I, I want to talk about the next uh, area of the Inspiring Leadership Campus about cultural quotient or collective intelligence. This idea of, uh, of pulling together a whole collection of different people with different perspectives and different backgrounds. You've traveled the world, whether it be to Japan or Africa or uh, or, or the Middle East and, and, and Afghanistan. What's been your tip about understanding, getting on with people who are very diverse and different from you? Yeah, I, so it's, it's an interesting question. I think I touched on it earlier. Curiosity is absolutely essential. Asking lots of questions, certainly not having many of the answers. Um, being sort of thoroughly engaged in trying to understand a community. So a lot of the work that you know, we do at the moment is an idea that we developed in, in Helmand about how do you get useful data, quantitative and qualitative data out of communities? Because you know, with the advent of environmental social governance, it's very, very different to corporate social responsibility, which was, sadly became a marketing event rather than something that was trying to impact outcomes. Mm. So the data side of that has become very, very important to our company. And so understanding culture and the, the sort of social side and having the data is something which we think is very important. Yeah, and We're actively, a large part of our business has increasingly become um, getting that data in conjunction and working with communities to do so. Mm. Well, uh, which takes me on nicely to the, the next one, which is very closely connected to EQ, emotional and social intelligence quotient. And, and what have you found in particular when you talked about um, your upbringing, listening more than speaking, and even just there where you're talking about having, uh, being less cocky about having all the answers and trying to, to hear what others think by asking lots of questions. What other bit of advice would you give people that's helped you develop your EQ uh, and helped you and your company be successful? I, I think one of the most important aspects of EQ is candor. It's often in 
it's often fairly absent in a lot of um, companies because of, you know, perhaps they're fearful of speaking out or perhaps they're not encouraged to, to speak their mind. So candor to me is part of the, the emotional the EQ side. It's hugely important, but then there's ways that you can be candid without being confrontational. And there's ways that you can be uh, candid without sort of seeking an argument or trying to be little. But it's an absolutely essential component of successful leadership. And mm. I, I know from my own experience that when you're having to break bad news to someone, you know, you're not getting that promotion or it's, uh, you're not getting what you thought was going to happen or whatever. They can be very difficult conversations um, and, it's, and they can be very emotional conversations. Mm. But the key, I think the key point is they're always better afterwards for actually understanding the situation, the position. Yeah, I, I, I can't agree more. And I think being a Yorkshireman, I tend to be a bit blunt. Uh, so at times, I, uh, my wife laughs at me and says, I just can't believe you just just say it, you know what? But sometimes it works, but sometimes I need a little bit more emotional and social intelligence in perhaps holding back on what I think or feel or what I perceive to be the truth uh, and just being more curious about someone else. But no, that's, that's really made me think. And I do, I do love candor. I think of all the people who've spoken on EQ, I think that's for me the most astute comment. Um, RQ is the next one, resilience against adversity. You, you've had a huge amount of adversity you've had to overcome. And indeed, being the adventurer over the comfort, you probably even seek out adversity to push your Sisyphus boulder up your hill and then next morning have to do it all over again. Yeah, yeah. Um, what would you give as a, as a tip on resilience uh, against adversity? Yeah, these are really interesting questions. Um, I think one part of resilience is kind of trying to ensure you remain healthy in mind and body. Um, certainly the places we go to, I mean, we spent, you know, over two weeks in Benghazi, um, what, four years, three, four years ago. Um, it was, you know, I go to remote villages, in, in Africa and spend nights in some of those villages because that's where the mine site is, is based. And so there's a sort of physical piece that I don't think is a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. Um, so experiencing discomfort is, is quite important. And, and the army delivers that um, continually and constantly in operations. Yeah? Mm. I, think it's, I think it's good for you. And then the other part of it, really, the most important part is in your mind, you know, is this idea of resilience. And it's fairly simple in the sense that it's never as bad as you think it is, although you can easily convince yourself it is. Hence my moment of doubt returning from the, um, the ramp ceremony in, in Helmand. Mm. Yeah. But also I think it's... Um, um, important that you share what you're experiencing. Mm. You know, trying to keep it. I mean, I, I know plenty of individuals who don't do this, who don't share 
you know, the old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved, yeah? Mm. And, um, and certainly, you know, I think part of resilience is, uh, you know, inside every small problem is a really big one trying to get out. And so resilience is part of dealing with it there and then. It's mm. not putting it off until tomorrow. Yeah, no, very good. Let's do a few quick fire questions just in our last uh, few minutes, if we would, Andrew. I'm just going to change the... Okay, yeah, please do. We're going to talk next about um, brand, reputation, image and impact, BQ as we call it. Um, and in brand, reputation, image and impact, uh, we often need to get feedback from other people, how they perceive you. And the army was very good at that. There was quite a process of certainly upwards, downwards, but mm -hmm. maybe not downwards, upwards. But in your business, you have to get 360 feedback from everywhere. What's your, your tip on how important it is in an organization to have real 360 feedback everywhere? Um, I do think it's important. Um, and, um, but, but, but also there are dangers in terms of how it's conducted. Um, mm. I, think, I think the most important thing is, is that you as an individual need to put yourself in a position where you can be critiqued. Um, now, again, it doesn't have to be something that's brutal, but part of that problem is people need to have the confidence to give you that feedback. And so that that's, to my mind, is the skill of how do you get that feedback from contemporaries, above you, below you, um, in a manner that is um, a learning exercise. Mm. And it's not easy. I mean, it's, um, I've seen it done in companies that we work for um, or who are clients, and we're not part of it, but I've certainly been asked for 360 feedback on individuals because I deal with them. Um, and you basically don't have any confidence that what you're saying um, is going to be confidential or that when the individual gets it, he's, he says, oh, God, I knew that. that yeah, yeah that's, that was Andrew Mackay who said that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure, I'm not particularly confident about it in terms of a method that's done, um, the methods that are employed to do it. Yeah. But I'm much more confident in actually... Um, getting it yourself, yeah, 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 and saying to people, "Did we do well? Did we do badly?" And it's not a survey that we're certainly played for, you know, played on. You know, um, it's basically that candid conversation mm. and ensuring that those who are, you know, you know um, sitting under you or alongside you feel confident enough to say it. Let's yeah. say a moment of candor like that had a major impact on my tour as a commanding officer when a soldier decided to tell me that what I, a decision I'd made was fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and so it was a real wake-up call. And um, thank God he had the, the wit to do it. Yeah, no, it's great when you get those. They just don't hang back. Uh, I, I got lots of wisdom uh, from my soldiers in the Green Howards. Uh, when I was there, and have, didn't you have the Green Howards as part of your brigade? 
weren't they there? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And um, so last couple of thoughts, uh, legacy, um, legacy stewardship, leaving things better than you found them. What would be your tip on legacy people leaving a good legacy? Wow. Um, I, I don't want to be, um, I think leaving a happy organization is a decent legacy. Yeah. Because I think happy organizations perform far better. Yeah. Um, now, easy enough to say what, what makes the organization happy. Yeah. I think it's the fact that, you know, I think it's a balance of the balance of individuals who are with you at the time. You know, are they all confident? Um, they have your confidence. Um, I'm a passionate believer in delegating to the point of discomfort um, because then you're getting the best of people and they feel that they're getting the authority and responsibility. Mm. Many of the organisations that I've come across, uh, you have people who want the authority but not the responsibility and you have an awful lot of people who've got lots of responsibility but not the authority and that's where you come across fairly toxic organizations. So aligning authority and responsibility has always been a big deal for me. Um, and, you know, and it's, it, it does involve this idea of delegating to the point of discomfort um, and then not hammering someone because they screwed up or made a mistake. You know, if it's based on complacency or stupidity, then you know, there's ways of dealing with that. But if it's because you've tried and it hasn't worked, then, well, actually, I did delegate the authority and the responsibility to you. Yeah, no, great words. Uh, love that. And then last couple of thoughts. We talked about toxic a moment ago. Toxic teams, if there was one tip you've given from your experience uh, of turning a toxic team into a high-performing team, and maybe a happy team. Um, what would be your your bit of wisdom on uh, turning around a toxic team? Um, I think it's relatively simple in that it's normally based on one or two individuals, mm -hmm. and you get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I mean, candor is one thing. Occasionally, hard nosed decisions that are going to benefit. The remainder of the team mm. often involves removal of individuals from that team. Yeah. And sometimes that's very difficult because they're doing a very important job, mm. um, but they have to go. And um, the organization is always much, much better for it. Doesn't mean to say that they'd be completely defenestrated and sacked and thrown out of the job. There might be other jobs that they're better suited to. Often, actually, they're in the wrong job, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Yeah. No. And now is the time we, we've talked about your books. I'll pass on, on that one because that was a, you gave a good advice on a book you recommended. But I'd like you to end, if you would, with your two minute top tip, uh, a leadership tip you found served you well uh, now and in, in the past in your successful army career and also in your earlier uh, Royal Hong Kong police career. Uh, what would be your top tip if you just perhaps introduce yourself again? Um, and, and what you're doing now, and then give us your top tip. We'll end with that. Um, yeah, this is um, Andrew Bakai, the CEO of Complexus and a former Army General and Inspector in the, the Royal Hong Kong Police.
My top tips. I think I'm a passionate believer in the idea that you delegate to the point of discomfort within an organization. I'm also a passionate believer in understanding that what you don't know is of far more relevant than what you do know. Donald Rumsfeld's known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns was to my mind, a genuine bit of life advice that people should take seriously. Do not believe what you don't believe until you know what it is you need to know. Another bit of outstanding advice wasn't me, it was an RV Jones. So I think finally, candor, always candor. Organizations can't run efficiently, they can't run effectively because candor reveals and candor improves. Fantastic advice. Thank you very much indeed, uh, General Andrew Mackay. Uh, it's been lovely having you on the Inspiring Leadership Series and I wish you every success with your, your business as it thrives and grows. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.